Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. But we are here tonight to celebrate the release of Carl Gehry's novel, Montpellier Parade, described by The Guardian as pitch perfect, and The Irish Times as luminous, brilliantly paced, full of tension and tenderness. Here to introduce Carl is J.T. Petty, an, excuse me, an American film director, author, and video game writer. His graphic novel, Bloody Chester, was published by First Second. Please help me welcome J.T. Thank you very much. Hey. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Carl asked me to introduce him. I, I assume most of you know him. Um, and it's funny thinking back on his biography of how many different things he's done and when I meet different people from his life, how differently they think of him. Because he has, he's a, uh, uh, actor and a screenwriter. He's now a novelist. I know people who know him as a, uh, he's opened up the music venue, I guess, uh, the, the bar, the scratcher, like these institutions in New York. Bartender, yeah. Um, criminal and, 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 and through all of it uh, like one of his criminal activities actually like I remember him telling me that story is now the basis of one of the films I'm working on um, which which I won't describe because I don't know what the statute of limitations on that sort of stuff is but 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 Carl is a remarkable filmmaker remarkable storyteller and and in everything that he's done I think what is interesting is that he's very much a builder you know when he, when he was making the the scratcher it was always about he knew a guy who could get him some pews and he like took those pews apart and he built this place and then he was building a house and then he was like working on a screenplay and I worked on screenplays with him and whatever he's doing he's always uh, he's very handsy right like he's always putting things together it's, it sounds better in the U.S. Um, uh, but, but regardless, I don't know. This is getting off track. I, I, but I, the, the book's great. Is <laughs> the other thing I wanted to say. It's just that, like, that my the experience I hate most in life is when creative people ask me to read their work or to look at what they've done. It's like as somebody, I'm surrounded by novelists and filmmakers. I'm married to a novelist. All of my friends make things and it's such a moment of anxiety when somebody tells you, could you please look at this thing I did? And especially like when your actor friend is like, will you read my novel? It's like, oh god damn it, this is like this is probably the environment where like being charming and having a pretty face will be the least valuable crutch possible. Um, but then I read the book and it's great. I got like, you know, 20 pages into it and I forgot Carl wrote it. And it's, it's like... Uh, it's like if Patricia Highsmith knew what it was like to be a teenage boy, which is terrifying. Like, it's got all of those ideas of, like, a thriller, and it's so smart and so emotional and so psychological. Um, so even if I didn't like him, I would have loved the book, which is, is as good as I can say. So, and I think uh, Carl just asked me if I would come and talk to him afterwards to sort of start the Q&A, so I will be back up here. Um, but without further ado, uh, Carl Geary. JT, that's, hello, hello, are we in? Oh, 
They're right there. Oh, <laughs> that's all right. Oh, I'm back. I'm on. That's the sweetest thing. He's usually so mean to me, and I just assumed he would continue that tradition. So I'm I'm really kind of moved by that. Um, thank you all for coming out. I I got in late last night from Glasgow, uh, which is where I live, because um, Ireland is no longer depressing enough. <laughs> Um, and I took a train down and then I took a flight and so I'm kind of out of it in some ways but it's the start of a, a fairly long tour across the US and it's it's lovely to see some old friends it's thanks for showing up um, so so what I thought I'd do is I'm just going to read a wee bit and not long because you know when they just go on and on I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not do that um, and it's just a, a, a period in the story where we have two characters, essentially it's Sonny and Vera. Sonny's a working class kid who comes across a woman who is essentially other uh, and different from his experience. She's older, she's from a different class, um, and things are available to her that seem unthinkable in Sonny's world. And, there's a commonality between them, we learn at some point, and that these two humans have both stalled out. Um, they, they don't quite know how to get go on. And it's really about these two people who potentially find a way to move forward. Um, so anyway, um, Sonny is very romantic. When Vera is in a hospital, he breaks into her house and reads her books um, and decides then he would go along to the hospital and visit her. Um, and I should say that he discovers her while he's working on her house. He discovers that she's attempted suicide and saves her. Uh, which he's not entirely grateful for. Um, but it's important because there's a lot of secrets in the book and suddenly he becomes part of her secret and he kind of becomes kind of folded into her life through the secret. Um, so this is, this is just him going to visit her in hospital. It's a comedy. Have you come to read to me, says Vera. If you like, if you have a book, you say. The heavy door closing behind you. The lights were off in the smoking room, and Vera was an L-shaped silhouette in a green chair, catching none of the creeping light from the large window. You had walked first past her empty house, too frightened to go inside, then continuing along the road until you reached the hospital. You waited outside, watching through the plate glass for the matron to move away from her post. Then you went along the dim corridor, up the stairs, passing occasional late-night visitors coming to and from the intensive care unit. Murmurs of difficult conversations echoing off the sterile walls and floors. From the doorway of her ward, you had seen Vera's unmade bed and empty sheets, the blue blanket in a great mound at its base. I couldn't sleep, you say, and walked over and sat down next to her. Are you here to see me? Or is there someone else you're visiting? You, I'm, I'm here to see you. What would you have done if I was asleep? Don't know, waited, woken you. She smiled and passed a packet of smokes she held in her hand. Do you know what I'd love, she says. Toast, with real butter and marmalade, decent fucking coffee. She had 
Not put on her slippers and her big toe closest to you had a scrape of red nail varnish. There's a farter in my ward. I've not located her, but she's there, <laughs> farting. <laughs> you laughed, and she seemed to like that. There's another woman about my age, has these awful little snot-nosed kids, pile around her every day. I don't think she's sick. She's on sabbatical. And when she leaves, when they leave, she takes out a magazine and visibly relaxes. Have you children, you say? But she didn't like that. A long ash toppled from the top of her cigarette and fell unnoticed. Are your feet cold, you say? No. What's your story, Sonny? I don't know. Have you a crush on me or something? You looked away and felt your face flush. There's no need to be coquettish about it. I don't know what that means. It means you need to read more. Not too old for you, no. She looked at you then and you were brave and held her stare. No, you say. I suppose if that's what works for you. What's with the wine, the red wine? Who's that for? Me. Just you. Yeah, a bit flowery for your neck of the woods, no? My neck of the woods? Look, if you're going to pretend to be stupid, I'll find another friend. Yes, your neck of the woods. The end where teenage lads don't drink red wine. And she lit another cigarette. The small flame illuminated her face. You watched her hands fold around the flame and her mouth press forward. Why did you move to Ireland? I like the rain. You must fucking love it so. Who cares, Sonny? I mean, it's really, it's a story. I do, you say. Well, good, you make one up and we'll both believe it. You were lost then. You really had no idea how to speak with her. If it were Sharon, you'd have just pushed her and she'd have pushed you back and that would be that. But you sat in the dark room in the silence and smoked. And you were glad to know you had the duration of time a fresh lit cigarette gave you. Each puff falling like pink sand from an hourglass. The silence between you was enough. You watched her secretly at first and then allowed your stare to open, openly settle here and there as you pleased. And she showed no signs of discomfort. She was beautiful, your Vera, and perhaps used to being watched. She turned in and caught your eye on purpose, held it like a vice, like an inspection. Your eyes and nose and mouth and chin. You're too young to be lonely. Where are your friends, she says. Where are yours? She continued to watch you and might have said something, but her attention was turned to the sound of quick footsteps from the corridor. They stopped and at once the door was pushed open. Oh, it's you in here, Vera, says a nurse, scarcely filling the door frame. You could see a dark crucifix strapped to the wall behind you. Behind her, it frightens you. A crucifix always frightens you. Yes, says Vera, my nephew has paid a visit from Wexford. Oh, well, says the nurse. We're not disturbing you. Well, it's certainly bending the rules. As you know, I mean, really, you should not be let up at this late hour. It, it might make the other women uncomfortable. Of course, says Vera. Right so. The nurse nodded sharply once and the door closed behind her. That's your marching orders, I think, she says. What she got against people from Wexford, you say, standing. She smiled a bit and you wondered if you were making it up because you wanted it to be true or did she seem disappointed you were leaving? Thanks for the visit, she says. Yeah, you say, standing over her. She looked up with a slight smile. You better go before you make the women uncomfortable. <laughs> Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Um, so yes, I didn't know I had permission to be mean. Um, so like, what was the most embarrassing part about writing this book? 
Is that really a question? Uh, no, no. <laughs> so how did you like? How did you? <laughs> how did you decide this was going to be a book? Because I mean, you've, you've I've read a couple of your screenplays, which are also great, um, but this seems like a very different story. Yeah, it is. It, 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 I, I'd written a book when I was in my twenties. That was terrible, um, but it served as, a, as an apprenticeship for uh, the way I would think in some ways, and I think I would identify in some ways for myself in this private way as a as a prose writer. You know, it, it's it's something I kind of feel moves me in a way that other forms of communication don't, um, and. I was reluctant in some ways because this this is in second person, obviously, um, and I've read second person stories, short stories that have been very successful. When it's a when it's a full novel, it, it's it's very difficult to sustain, and so I didn't want that. I, I tried to go back to first person and third person omnipresent, and it uh, it didn't have that same intimacy that I wanted to have with Sonny. Um, which doesn't answer your question at all. <laughs> well, no, it actually, I mean, so like se uh, the second person telling of the story yeah. is definitely like such a specific point of view. Yeah. And like what I what I thought about reading it uh, because because I'm a troglodyte who only thinks in movies was basically point of view shots. Yeah. That like when when you are being guided as a second person, you've got this feeling of being forced into the character's eyes, and the book is very much about uh, sensation. And sort of noticing environment and interactions between people. Yeah, in some ways, what I wanted was to, to f eventually what would what, what would come to the light is that you have a, a protagonist who can't quite come to terms with their own story, with their own narrative, and are trying to almost push it away. And you is very valuable if you want to accuse somebody of something. Huh. It's an accusation, you, you, you. And, and, and so it can be guided to, 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 to reveal something about Sonny would ever, ever happen to say it. Um, there's also something in the Irish um, vernacular where people tell stories in second person. You know, mm -hmm. something that's just happened to them and they'll start the story. You, you wouldn't believe your man. You know, and it's kind of like this rambling story that, that is, is told in second person. I can't so tell you surprised. how much that confused me the first couple times we met. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing, and I'm kind of surprised it's not used in Irish stories more. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's something very much about that. And then, then what was it like writing Vera? Because she's such a specific character, and, and they're, both, they're both hiding lots of things. Yeah, it's hard to fill up pages with people who won't tell you anything. Um, <laughs> but what I realized is that facts don't matter. You know, I saw the two of them as bookends in some ways. Um, when Vera, when Sonny thinks about the world, he, it's it's moving forward. You know, he's young, and 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 yet to be explored. Vera's on the other side of that, and when she thinks it's over her shoulder, it's in memories. And so, in some ways, putting these two people together is exciting for me, you know. Um, but she's not interested in the facts of her life. And actually, the reason the book ended up being called Montpellier Parade, it's the street she lives in. And uh, we learn a lot about her by her house um, that she's on her way out of. Um, 
you know, and it was just another way of revealing who she is. And every time Sonny who's, who's, who's keeps trying for information, she shuts him down. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a very forensic book in a lot of ways. And, yeah. like, it feels like the... Uh, it, it's all Dublin, right? Like, uh, yes, it's, it's all Dublin, yeah. And, and the details about that and the way sort of the butcher shop and the, the way that these different locations sort of talk about the people who occupy them yeah. is really interesting. Well, you have a... You know, the class is a big part of what the book is about. Um, and so there's a sharp contrast between Sonny's world which is very narrow it's very tiny and her house is this grand house that's fading um and i suppose i had a thought there now and it's gone out of my head um what did you ask me i was talking about forensics (laughs) about locations uh, reflecting on people there is it's 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 a lot of what makes the book kind of creepy is is how he sort of goes around and eats up people's spaces and like in his space where he lives is so crowded yeah that's not helping me at no, all not at all because <laughs> you weren't in dublin when you wrote it right this was all when no you were in that's New York, right i i i uh i hadn't lived uh, and it's, i think that, you know for me just personally it's interesting because you i haven't lived in dublin since i was 16 which wasn't yesterday. Um, and it's funny how a place sticks to you. Uh, and I will never, there's a, there's a poet I like a lot, of, an Irish poet called Patrick Havan, and he talks about this in his work where you can have this intimacy with a place or you can have the world, but you can't have both, you know? And I, I, I really like that. Um, and I, I'll never have that sense again of a time and place um, that I have with Dublin and I'm sure everyone has with their hometown um, but I, I his father's a builder and he, he spends a lot of time with him just building walls and just I like that image this kind of fortification that's going on where you know on one hand he wants to be his father's son he wants to be part of the community but he's looked over the wall and you can't have both, you know? And, and, and so there's this choices to make. There's a, there's a thing with that the hero's journey, you know, that, that mythology, where it, it always gets the story ends. So the story is the hero goes into the underworld and he has this big fight. He fights the dragon or whoever it is and is victorious and gets the wisdom. And the story normally ends there and you get the credits and it's the end and it's a happy ever after. But the, the way that story actually ends is he has to bring that wisdom back to the tribe and they'll normally kill him because they don't want it you can't come in here and tell us what we're doing and at one point Sonny brings a book that he's stolen from Vera and Mm. opens it on the kitchen table and it's like an act of terrorism it's like you can't because you're challenging you know and particularly again with in terms let's come back to me now (laughs) Uh, in, in, in terms of class I wasn't interested. Look, Irish fiction has handled uh, working class poverty to the point of pornography at this point. I mean, we've done that really well. And so I wasn't interested in that. But what what does interest me, if not what's on the table or in the fridge, is what's not on the bookshelves and what's not on the walls. Um, And that's what Vera gives, that's her gift to him, is that she shows him through that stuff that there, there's another world. <laughs> Showed up for the sex and stayed for the books. And so every relationship. Um, 
You should probably open it to the audience, because I'm obviously not, not helping. <laughs> uh, yeah, does anybody have any questions? Thank you. I'm very excited to read it. I haven't read it yet. But I'm just curious, with everything you've done in your life, um, why now? Why write a novel now? Was it something that you said you tried writing a book in your 20s and you put it away? Was it something that frightened you a little bit? Or it just felt like it, it, it just for some reason now was the time in your life that you wanted to sit down? I know it took you a while to write it. Yeah. Yeah, it, did. it took it was four years, four and a half years, but you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I think I found it very frightening, not just because the process of writing, but which is excruciating in its own way, but I found it very difficult to sit throughout my twenties and thirties. Still, I mean, I mean, physically, I found that very difficult. Um, and now I'm just tired, <laughs> so <laughs> it it helps. Um, but no, I think it's a really good point. I think, you know, I, I I would love to be more like Keats, you know, without the dead at 25 bit. But like, you know, I, some people are very capable younger. Um, and, and and there was a there's a quote that I heard uh, that Joyce, of course, it's not a cliche, but Joyce has this quote after writing Dubliners, and he was talking about language, uh, and he said that he wanted to approach the language with a scrupulous meanness, meaning that it's not exaggerated one way or another. Um, and I think, I, I really like that, I, I, I like... I, I took hundreds of pages away because I wanted it to be, you know, not mean, but I, I wanted to come back to the essential that that that, that each part of it was defendable, um, and in order to do that, it, it requires something from me at least that I wouldn't have had ten years ago. Um, if that answers. Um, there's a relationship that I find anyway with, with as a reader uh, towards an author. You kind of you meet in the middle somewhere, and it's a private place you meet, and you have to show up to meet them. You can't just sit there for two hours and be told. And I felt like this story deserved to be told in a way that was more private. And with that private, I wouldn't know how to do that as a filmmaker. Um, somebody more talented might be able to, but I couldn't. And also, I wanted to, the experience of, of that I get as a writer in my part of it, do you know? But I, I like that agreement that readers and writers have, that you'll meet somewhere in the center. Um, because, 
I think the difference between narrative prose and filmmaking is that one kind of points, which is prose points, and and um, cinema reveals. And I, I think they're different things. Um, and 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 they look a lot alike, but I really don't think they are. Do you know that kind of in terms of how one tells a story? There's a second part to that, yes. Um, and the second bit, I, I don't know. I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I wonder if, if having been an actor and uh, scriptwriter wasn't a hindrance um, in some ways. I, I would like to think it, it's not. I mean, I think my ear is tuned fairly well to dialogue, but it doesn't help me write it because it's a, again, it's a, it's a different muscle. Um, so I actually think, if anything, it's it was something you had to almost undo what you know and start afresh. Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've worked with Carl a couple times as an actor, and I will say that he does more so than other actors does approach it as a storyteller more than as uh, a more experiential kind of thing. If yeah. I can describe your process from the outside, <laughs> yeah. but, but definitely, like you, you know, we'd be talking about a scene, and you'd be talking about everything that got a person there, and you'd be talking about baggage and, and all of that and it was less about it seemed less technique and more storytelling yeah it's a problem actually do you know what actually, it's a good point it's a problem for me because I always feel as an actor I was always a beat or two behind where you needed to be because I'm I was observing it before I could be in it and um the people I worked with who were just blisteringly good there was no delay and it was the difference between what I think of as a great actor and me. Honest to God, I'm not just giving myself a hard time. I'm fine. I can do a thing. But it, it, it's... I really do think, like, you know, when you watch... It's just this blistering alertness to the moment, which I don't have, because I, I, I tend to observe it. Well, there's different kind of actors. Well, that's right. I mean, it's also <laughs> just like there's... Well, that's right. Yeah. It's like, like there's the Tom Hardy actors who obviously might not have brain stems. Yeah, you know, correct. but they're yeah. just like, oh, they react so quickly yeah. and interestingly. But yeah, then, correct. But there's, you know, like De Niro's putting in craft. Yeah. There's stuff going on. Yeah. So don't be so hard on yourself. Thank you. Your book's good, too. <laughs> Any other... <laughs> Um, what was your process like? Like, how did you create the space? You know, you've got kids, you've got a full life. I am just like, don't really have energy or time. Yeah. I think it's really a struggle. I think anyone who has kids and they're around in a real way, it's tough. Uh, but I think uh, I would get up before them. Nice. <laughs> and that was the way to do it. It's if I couldn't get up before them, it didn't happen. So there was that. Um, I'm, I'm not good at writing in the evening. There's nothing left. But I loved that bit in the morning, an hour or two. Amazing. But it, it, actually what was great is it, the every day, that if you did that. Even I have a friend of mine who's a terrific author and has written four books now. Writes 20 minutes, but every day. And it, but it's uh, it, it, quite strict with herself about that. To do a lot in 20 minutes, the pages add up, you know. Right. Will we leave them in peace? Is that, oh, we got one more. <laughs> oh, no, sorry, yeah. excuse me. Um, what writers have influenced you in this book? Uh, this book, um, huge influence in this was, there's a woman called Maeve Binchy. No, not Binchy, Jesus, Brennan. There's also a woman called Maeve Binchy, but she wasn't, it was Maeve, Maeve Brennan, who 
really only wrote three small novellas. She wrote for the New Yorker, and she wrote for the New Yorker under the watchful eye of William Maxwell. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Um, who was quite a force of nature as an editor. I think he'd worked with Salinger and people like that. He was quite something. And she had this thing that... Uh, everything she would write before she would present it to this guy. She, she wanted to be able to defend every word. Um, but her books are set on one street in Dublin in, I think, the 50s. And they're very simple stories, but they're beautiful. And I love that. You know, I, I, I like the way, you know, if you describe a room well enough, you'll know something about the world. Um, and. And, and that's what she does. It's just these very simple stories. So she was huge for me, particularly a book called uh, Springs of Affection. Um, and there's another guy who never made it. I'm surprised he's kind of, he was huge in France and, and, and in Europe. Um, a guy called John McGahern, um, who writes rural stories, farming, small, again, small stories. And I thought about him in terms of like, if you could bring a rural story and tell it in the city, because the pacing of this is quite, quite rural in some ways. And I do think it's interesting when you can play against what we expect from a city story. So th those two guys are huge. Cool. Oh, we won't overstay. I, I think <laughs> let's, all, uh, let's all thank Carl. Unless, do you want to keep going? No, I feel, yeah. perfect. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.